You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 20 is where we are in our study of the Word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 20, we read beginning at verse 17 to verse 19. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us, that you have made us your people. We gather today as your church. We are mindful there are people among us and people who will hear me who don't yet know you. And we, as has already been voiced, we ask that in your great mercy and kindness and grace you would save them. But we gather as redeemed people. And we are thankful that we have it in our hearts. Praise the one who gave his life to save us, even as we've just sung about. And this morning, with the strength that you provide, we strive to declare his glories. And we pray that you would be our helper. That the Holy Spirit of God would strengthen me declare rightly and well the things that you've revealed in these verses. And Lord, we ask you then to deal with our hearts, your people, in a way that brings the change or the fortification, the encouragement that you know that we need. May the result be that we leave this place not only having worshipped you, but ready to live lives that worship you outside this corporate gathering. Or do you work in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a very sad reality on display in our world every day. People who make use of the words of Jesus, but then demonstrate in their thinking, in their attitudes, in their words, in their actions, they demonstrate, they don't really grasp those words. His words are in their minds, His words are in their mouths, but they don't really grasp those words. Though they know the words of Jesus, they don't reflect the heart of Jesus. And their life doesn't reflect the character of Jesus. So that what you recognize is in their understanding and in their application of the words of Christ, there is something defective. Some of those people are strangers to Jesus. The reason why they have His words, but they don't know His ways, is because they don't know Him. You think about it often, the fact that Judas heard Jesus preach. Judas could have repeated much of what he heard. In those discussions that our Lord would have, with his disciples where they would debrief what they had heard during the day and talk about the things that he had taught. 
I mean, Judas was there. I'm sure he participated in the conversations. In fact, Judas could sound very pious. Judas knew how to talk like a man who cared about what God wanted. For example, he knew how to talk about concern for the poor when in truth he was only concerned about himself. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You have the words of Christ, but you're really a stranger to the one who gave the words. But it's not just strangers to Christ who can miss the meaning of His words. Did you know it's possible for a believer, someone who has the Holy Spirit, to know something of what Christ has said and yet not really grasp what they've heard? Now, the Lord's not going to leave you there. The Lord is going to, if you're, if you're truly born again, He's going to go on being your teacher and your guide and you're going to mature and grow and your understanding is going to be enlightened. But there are seasons when genuine believers are missing the message. Sometimes this happens almost in the form of a movement. You see this when you look at the evangelical landscape, you'll see things gain momentum and gain even ascendancy in the realm of the evangelical world that's just off. It's done in the name of Jesus. It's using the words of Jesus, but it's off. It's defective. A couple of those things are really on my mind of late because you see them all over the place. Christian nationalism. You hear a lot about that and many people who claim to be representing Jesus, don't really understand what He's teaching about the believer and our time in this world. What I like to refer to, sort of with a bit of sarcasm, I guess, is the manly man movement. A right reaction, well, let me say it this way, something that needs to be responded to, something that needs to be reacted to, that is, the feminization of our culture, the sexual confusion of our time, in many places, the feminizing of the church, it's right that we recognize that that is wrong. Those who would reject biblical complementarity, that's wrong. Those who would reject the biblical roles of men and women, that's wrong. We're right to recognize that's wrong. But unfortunately, what is often the response to it is just as wrong, just on the other end of the spectrum. But they use the words of Jesus. They use the words of the Bible. But their attitude and their mindset and their application of it gives evidence they don't really understand it. A form of godliness, but one that denies the power of godliness. The power of God that changes proud men into humble men. Changes selfish men into loving men self-willed men into submissive men. I mean submissive to Christ. I mean submissive to His church. I mean submissive to His Word. The manly man movement, and yet it 
is lacking so many things that the Bible emphasizes. And by the way, this is one of the ways that you'll recognize error. It's not just by what it says, it's by what it doesn't say. It's not just by what it emphasizes, it's by what it will not emphasize. But those are just two examples. Christian nationalism and the misguided manly man movement. I bring it up because something similar is actually happening in our verses. Jesus is reminding His disciples for the third time what awaits them in Jerusalem. He's told them this before. They've heard Jesus. In fact, we have it in the Scriptures that they had talked about what He taught. They've talked about what He taught them. And yet we're going to see this morning, they don't really grasp the meaning of His words. They have His words, but they still haven't grasp the meaning of those words. We'll see it tonight as well. You go to the very next section. We'll look at this tonight, verses 20 through 28, and it becomes very plain. They don't understand what He's talking about. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at our Savior. That last song was just fabulous and powerful, and we're looking at Jesus. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to look at our Savior. And as we do, we're going to consider what He says here under two headings, two main points. Number one, always the shepherd. Number two, always courageous. Always the shepherd, always courageous. We're talking this morning about our courageous shepherd. First of all, always the shepherd. Look again at verse 17. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way He said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and will deliver Him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify Him. And on the third day He will be raised up. Now you'll remember that starting in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has turned His attention to His own disciples. If you look at the first 12 chapters of Matthew and you begin to look then at the earthly ministry of Jesus, the emphasis was on what He was preaching and teaching publicly, and then you would have snippets of His private conversations with disciples. Beginning at chapter 13, the emphasis is not on His public teaching. The emphasis is on these private discussions, teaching times He has with His disciples. And His Galilean ministry is drawing to a close. He has made His way south bypassing Samaria, traveling on the east side of the Jordan River. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So He's on the east side of the Jordan River. Crosses over to Jericho. From there He will go up to Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 29. And as He is making His way toward Jerusalem, Matthew tells us that Jesus speaks with His disciples Privately, Verse 17, He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, He said to them. So there are others following Jesus along with the twelve. But He wants to say something to the twelve. He wants them to know what awaits them in Jerusalem. As I said earlier, this is the third time He's done this. Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
Matthew 17, verse 22, And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Each time, Jesus gives a little more information. The first time he spoke to them about this, he prepares them for the fact he's going to die. The second time, he informs them that he's going to be betrayed and turned over for execution. This time, he provides even more details about his suffering. Mark and Luke also talk about this third time of instruction. I want to read it because we're going to turn back to it from time to time. But there are details here that I think help us understand the disciples' mindset as Jesus is talking to them. So if you would just real quickly look at Mark chapter 10. Let's look at this together. And then put your finger at Luke 18. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 32. Mark and Luke describing the same scene we have here in Matthew. Mark 10 verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Get this, we'll talk about this more in a moment. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Luke 18, verse 31, and taking the twelve, if you want to turn there now, Luke chapter 18, Verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Now notice this, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So Jesus, three times, describing in increasing detail exactly what they're going to face when they arrive in Jerusalem. The men don't fully get it. So what is Jesus doing? We're thinking now about the fact that our Savior is always the shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He's yours. And He's theirs. What is He doing? First of all, I would say He's preparing them for the final stage. This is the final stage of His public ministry. His earthly ministry is ending. And the time for His rescuing sacrifice is swiftly approaching, where He will serve as our sin sacrifice, our substitute on the cross. And what our Lord is doing is He is shepherding them toward those events. He is preparing His men one more time, for the third time, the last time, for the next stage of what is coming. This is what He came into the world for. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give His life a ransom for many. And He wants them to be prepared to the extent that they can be for what they're about to face. Side note, 
whether we're talking about shepherding in the church or shepherding in the home, good shepherding is not just about what is happening right now. Good shepherding is preparing people for what is in the future. And that's what our Lord is doing. He's preparing His men for what was going to be very soon, very swiftly in their, in their lives. You see Paul doing the same thing with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He's shepherding them. And he says in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I mean for three years. He is preparing these men for this day when He will no longer be with them, and they will have entrusted to them the full weight of the shepherding responsibility that He is no longer there to assist them with. And He says, I want you to be ready for what you're going to face when I'm gone. Well, that's what our Lord is doing with His men in our verses. Look back at Matthew chapter 20. He is preparing them for the final stage. The second thing we can say that He's doing is He's preparing a specific group for that final stage. This is not just general instruction, is it? You have a host of people traveling with him along to Jerusalem, but he pulls the twelve aside, pulls the twelve into a private conversation as they're traveling. This is a special kind of preparation. It is devoted to the men who will then, in turn, later on, serve the rest of the people of God. So this is not just discipleship training, this is leadership training. He wants them prepared for what they're going to see Jesus suffer. This is why he mentions some very specific things like being spat upon and being flogged and being mocked. He doesn't want his men caught off guard by what they're going to witness their Lord suffer. He also wants them to be prepared for what they're going to soon face, and as he's told them on prior occasions, and we'll tell them again, much of this is not even for what they're going to be prepared for in that moment, but what they're going to reflect on later on. So beyond the crucifixion and the resurrection, even the ascension, the Spirit of God is then going to bring these things back to their memory, things he's taught them about, talked to them about, prepared them for. All of this is going to have use in the future. But he's preparing the twelve this specific group of men. And he does this knowing that they're confused right now. He understands their weakness. What was the mindset of the disciples as they make their way to Jerusalem? Interesting what we read in those other texts, isn't it? The, the men had an awareness that something was wrong. As they're making their way to Jerusalem, they know something is, is dark. They know they're headed into some sort of danger. Mark 10.32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. I mean, they're, they're, they're seeing Christ set His face like a flint. He is leading the way to Jerusalem. 
there's a sense of determination and urgency to the degree that they're amazed by it. And then the Bible says, and those who followed were afraid. There's something, you know, foreboding about this whole scene. And they got that part of it. In fact, there was a sadness that they felt as Jesus would talk about his suffering and his death. Matthew 17, 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. The Bible says, and they were greatly distressed, greatly troubled by what he's saying. They don't fully grasp it, but they know there's something dark here. They don't fully grasp it, but there's a sense of sadness in their hearts. Along around this time, you also witness something in the disciples that's, that's actually very encouraging. Though they are confused, they are resolved that they're going to follow him no matter what it costs them. John 11, verse 7, then after this, he said to, to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because, he, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He's going to get himself killed. That's what Thomas is saying. But you know what? We're going to go with him. We'll die with him. So there's this sense of darkness. Something is making them afraid. There's a sense of sadness as Jesus would talk about these things. It seems like they would push it from their minds pretty quickly. But in the moment, there's a sense of sadness. But they're ready to follow him no matter the cost. Through it all, confusion. Jesus has spoken plainly about these things. These are the 11 genuine believers. They grasp a lot of what he's talking about. They don't grasp it fully. We saw that in Luke 18, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So Jesus, why? Why are you talking to your men about these things when you know they don't fully grasp it? Well, to prepare them for the final stage, to prepare this group of men for that final stage. And, and he's preparing them for the future as well because what he's talking to them about forms the very center of why he has come into the world. He came to save us, as we just sang about. He came to save us by his death. And so he wants his men to hear this and this will become the, the center of their preaching. They're going to preach the cross of Christ. And so they'll be able to reflect back on these conversations as he grants perspective. And they, and they think about how he went and, and what he was talking about as he went. All of this 
has an immediate helping purpose, but it has an ultimate helping purpose. One final thing I think we need to work into this, and why Matthew records what he does. We'll look at this tonight, verses 20 through 28. Why you find verses 20 through 28 immediately after this conversation is because Jesus also meant for his thinking about these things to be the example, the model for how these men would think about leadership. What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a great man of God? What does it mean to be the kind of leader that God would be pleased with and set His approval on your leadership. It's one that's always concerned about others. Here is our Lord, listen, dear ones, heading toward the cross, heading toward His own cruel treatment and death, and yet what does He have on His mind? Men, come here. I want to talk to you. I want to prepare you. I want to help you. Our Lord is always the shepherd. Even when facing His own death, He is always the shepherd. James Montgomery Boyce said this, there's another reason why Jesus repeated these predictions so that the disciples might learn that self-denial, humility, and service were to be the pattern not merely of His life and ministry, but of their own. This had been clear from the very first time Jesus spoke of His death. Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. The first thing anyone needs to know about Jesus. Jesus had gone on to the second truth we need to know, namely that He had come to die and then be raised to life. Immediately after this, He used the example of His death to teach what the life of His disciples must be like. If anyone would come after Me, He must deny Himself and take up His cross and follow Me. The disciples don't get this because in the very next scene, what do James and John want and what are all the disciples upset about? They're still ambitious for recognition. They're still ambitious for glory. They're still ambitious to be great in the way that the world thinks about greatness. So he's preparing them for the final stage, and he's preparing a specific group. Third thing I want you to notice about our Lord shepherding here, he is also preparing in a way that imparts a sobering privilege. A sobering privilege. A whole host of people following these twelve are privileged to receive the instruction. That's a privilege. The Lord of glory pulls them aside to give them this instruction. But He doesn't pull 11 aside. He pulls 12 aside. Think about it. Judas is being told in advance of the sinful betrayal that he himself would orchestrate. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, verse 18, and the Son of Man will be betrayed, turned over, handed over. And one of the guys listening to this 
is the guy who's going to hand him over. Do you understand? What you and I are exposed to in the realm of truth will prove one day not just to have been for blessing. It will prove one day to have been for judgment. Every time the Word of God goes forth, God's purpose is fulfilled every single time. The Word of God never returns void. You say, well, how many people have listened to the Word of God and don't respond savingly, don't respond believingly? Wouldn't that represent a failure of the Word of God? Not at all, because the Word of God doesn't just go forth to save, it goes forth to judge. And this instruction would not just mean salvation, as it were, for the eleven. It's going to mean judgment for Judas. He's being told in advance exactly what he's going to do. What a responsibility was imparted by this talk along the way on their way to Jerusalem. At the Last Supper, Jesus spoke of that responsibility. Mark 14, verse 17 says, And when it was evening, He came to the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray Me, one who is eating with Me. They began to be sorrowful and say to Him one after another, Is it I? Let that sink in. You talk about the supernatural humility that regeneration produces in a heart. It results in some self-doubt, doesn't it? You know, the world preaches the message of self-confidence. But look at the work of the Spirit of God and you're going to see some healthy, godly, humble self-doubt. Is it me? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And then he says this, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Where light is rejected, hardness sets in. And Judas is so hardened in his sin that he would still be playing the role of a faithful follower. At the very moment, he was being warned about his betrayal. Think about that. At the very moment that you're in the room with Jesus and he is with divine perfect wisdom, putting his finger into your chest, loving you, I mean, it's an act that should rescue you. You're still pretending. Matthew 26, 24, The Son of Man goes, as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Listen to this, Judas, who would betray Him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Now, he already has this worked out. He knows it's Him. But still, just like He said, we could take this money and give it to the poor. You're not concerned about the poor. You're concerned about you. And here He is again. Is it me? When He knows it's Him. Jesus says, you have said so. You have said so. 
So in our verses, Judas is being told exactly what he's going to do before he does it. What is Jesus doing? He is shepherding. He's acting as the shepherd with these 11 men who are going to serve as the foundation for his church. Jesus not thinking about himself on the way to lay down his life to save these men who will be saved. The 12th will not be saved. But to lay his life down on behalf of all those who will trust him and be saved. Christ shepherding them to prepare them for what he's going to suffer and what they're going to suffer along with him. And acting as a rescuing kind of shepherd with Judas, warning him in advance of exactly what this man is going to do and the man's heart just continues to be hardened. Always the shepherd. Second point, always courageous. Always courageous. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death. And will deliver Him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify Him. Let this sink into our hearts today. And on the third day He will be raised up. This is included in Christ's talk. The resurrection. I submit to you today that the courage of Jesus displays the beauty of His person, leading the way, marching toward Jerusalem. Mark says, ahead of them all, the beauty of His person, but it also demonstrates the confidence that He had in His Father. Confidence in the knowledge of the sovereignty and trustworthiness of His Father. Courage on display as He leads the way to Jerusalem. This is a mystery you and I can't fully comprehend, that Jesus could fully embrace what He also dreaded in His humanness. You hear Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He dreads this. And yet He marches toward it. Even there where you see Him in the Garden struggling like He did, when it's done, the mindset, the attitude, the words say, let's go. Let's go. Matthew 26, 36, Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with Me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. 
See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The mystery of the person of Jesus, truly man, truly God, fully embracing what in his humanness he dreaded, always courageous, fully aware of where the road was leading, wasn't he? You know, there have been people in history who proved to be courageous, but they entered into their moment of courage not really knowing everything they were going to experience. Maybe some idea about what they were walking into, but not fully grasping what they were about to walk into. Our Lord is headed to Jerusalem knowing exactly the fullness of what He's going to experience. I mean, He is able to describe it in terms of the process involved. He's able to describe it in terms of the cruelty involved. He knows exactly where He's going. He knows exactly where this road leads. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and will deliver Him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify Him. Fully aware of where the road was leading. Delivered over to the Jewish leaders. That's, Jewish, that's Judas's betrayal. Delivered then to the Gentile powers. That's what the Jewish leaders will do. Delivered to cruel executioners because it's going to involve mocking and flogging and being spit upon. And then finally delivered to crucifixion, the most cruel kind of death ever, ever created by mankind. And in all of this, he has not even mentioned the worst of it which is becoming our sin sacrifice so that He knew upon Himself the wrath of God that we deserved. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? But He's leading the way. Knowing it all, He's leading the way to Jerusalem. He's confident in His Father's faithfulness. Verse 19, and on the third day he will be raised up. He's not courageous imagining a moral victory. He's courageous knowing he's going to have complete victory. Isaiah 53.10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We sometimes read Isaiah 53.10 and we rightly emphasize that God was pleased to uphold his justice to crush his own son, to uphold the righteousness of God in the penalty that sin must endure. But what we might miss in that verse more than we should is that Yahweh was pleased to crush His Son not just in view of His justice, but also in view of the victory that His Son would accomplish and be granted. Because in that same verse it says, He shall see His offspring. He will see the fruit of His sufferings. 
He will see those who will be redeemed by His blood. He will not be in a grave forever. He shall prolong His days. He will know the blessing of Yahweh. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. God's pleasure in our deliverance through the death of His Son is not just in the upholding of His justice, but in the fruit of His victory. And Jesus marches toward Jerusalem not just with His death in view, but His resurrection in view. And His resurrection is as certain as His suffering will be. John Piper put it well. He said, verse 10, speaking of Isaiah 53, verse 10, verse 10 says it was the Father's pleasure to do this. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. How could the Father find delight in the sacrifice of His own Son? One part of the answer must be what is stressed at the end of verse 10, namely that God's pleasure is in what the Son accomplishes in dying. It says at the end of verse 10, the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. I take that to mean that God's pleasure is not so much in the suffering of the Son considered in and of itself, but in the great success of what the Son would accomplish in His dying. For example, in verse 10, there would be many spiritual offspring and the lengthening of the days of the Son, which clearly means resurrection from the dead and life beyond the grave. And in verse 11, there would be the satisfaction that the Son will have in the fruit of His suffering and in the justification of many sinners. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. This is the pleasure of God that prospers in the hand of the Son. And surely part of the reason why the Father is pleased to bruise the Son. Close quote. Always the shepherd. Always courageous. I want to ask you, do you know him? Do you know the one who laid down his life because God was pleased to save sinners? Rescuing the very ones who had rebelled against him and deserved the wrath of God. As we sang this morning, some of those soldiers were saved as he put out his hands and allowed them to nail him to the tree. The instrument of execution that would secure their own salvation. Is that not amazing grace? Is that not astounding mercy and kindness? Do you know Him? Have you put your faith in the Son of God for a right standing with God? Have you thrown away every other confidence but Jesus for a right standing with God? Have you thrown away every imagination of your own righteousness so that you understand you're a worm deserving the wrath of God? Can you cry out with the disciples, is it me? Is it me? Or are you one of those full of yourself and full of self-confidence and you're going to march your way into a better life? Have you ever met Jesus? And if you say you know Him, then I want to ask you, don't you want His character formed in you? He keeps giving these lessons, not just to tell them the story, but to show them the way. The way of what it means to love God and love your neighbor. The way of what it means to be great in the estimation of heaven. And it's not the way of self-satisfaction and self-promotion and self-worth. 
It's the way of saying, God, whatever you want to do with me, I'm your slave. You're to be loved with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I'm to love others more than me. That's the way. And tonight we'll see they still don't get it. In fact, all the way to the point of the Last Supper, what does Jesus have to do but take a bowl of water and wash their feet to say, now this is how you're to serve each other. Do we know Him? Do we really want to be like Him? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank You for our Savior, our King, our Shepherd who laid down His life for Your sheep, whose blood is the explanation for Your flock, whose righteousness is our safety and security, our peace and our acceptance. Thank You for Jesus. And Lord, strengthen us to fully, more fully grasp who He is and what He's done and what You mean to make all of us as You conform us to His image. We ask You for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.